Holy Gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to Luke. Glory to you, Lord Christ. One Sabbath, when he went to dine at the house of a ruler of the Pharisees, they were watching him carefully. Now he told a parable to those who were invited, when he noticed how they chose the places of honor, saying to them, When you are invited by someone to a wedding feast, do not sit down in a place of honor, lest someone more distinguished than you be invited by him, and he who invited both of you will come and say, Give your place to this person, and then you will begin with the shame to take the lowest place. But when you are invited, go and sit in the lowest place, so that when your host comes, he may say to you, Friend, move up higher. Then you will be honored in the presence of all who sit at table with you. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. He said also to the man who had invited him, When you give a dinner or a banquet, do not invite your friends or your brothers or your relatives or rich neighbors, lest they also invite you in return and you be repaid. But when you give a feast, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, and you will be blessed because they cannot repay you. For you will be repaid at the resurrection of the just. This is the gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, Lord Christ. Please be seated. Now may the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be always acceptable in thy sight. O Lord, my strength and my redeemer. Amen. You know, in our gospel lesson today, Luke gets a little personal. The clash of kingdoms has been the clash between the kingdom of Rome and the kingdom of God. Something that we can keep at arm's length. Something political and out there. But now the clash of kingdoms comes inside, the clash that is in our very selves. It's not a political struggle that we deal with today, but internal struggle. A little road map of where we're going to go during this sermon time, because I'm going to go a lot of places. I know that surprises some of you, but to give you a little road map to, to know where we're going and a couple of the little scenic bypasses that we'll take. Our big theme today is that internal struggle, that struggle between arrogance and pride and humility and love. So we'll look at our gospel passage and we'll look at its structure in that glorious ambiguity that the parables provide for us. We'll take a little excursus looking at the way that scripture, particularly in the New Testament, goes into detail about this antithesis between pride and love. Then we'll return to our passage to see what it tells us about today, about how we come to this table and about how we go out into this world. So if you get a little bit lost, remember that the theme is going to be arrogance and pride as one side of this clash and humility and love. As the call of the kingdom. So as we look at our, our scripture passage, it begins one day. So we're coming to a new place. On one Sabbath, 
Jesus went to dine at the house of the ruler of the Pharisees, and they were watching him carefully. If we've been reading Luke, we've set up an expectation here. One Sabbath, Jesus is with the Pharisees, and they're watching him. So what is he going to do? He's going to do what he always does on the Sabbath, what he always does. He heals. It's the part of this passage that's omitted in our lectionary, but it's important. A man who suffers from edema is there. And, you know, we don't, we don't think about that disease very often now because we have some great drugs that take care of it. But in that time, edema is water comes out of the vasculature and, and pools in the lower extremities, especially there's an insatiable thirst. And so not only were people with dropsy, as the old term is, not only were they physically disfigured, but they were always seeking water. And so it became a, 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 a metaphor or a, a symbol of insatiable desire what the ancients would call gluttony. And so this man comes before Jesus, and Jesus says, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? No one dares answer him. And so he heals this man not only from his physical ailment of edema, but we can guess from Luke the physician that he is also healed from his spiritual ailment of gluttony. And that sets the stage as we Look at this feast that is laid out, this Sabbath dinner. And Jesus looks around, and he sees the Pharisees all jockeying for position. How am I going to edge my way into the position of honor that all may know that I am the most honorable here? You know, whenever Luke describes the Pharisees, it's always a marker for me about those who think they know it, those that think they have God in their little box and can control him. To me, when Luke talks about the Pharisees, he talks about the church and the dangers of the church. When we think we have it all together and all those people out there just don't. I was introduced to a new word this week, theolatry. When we think that our theology is so perfect that we worship our theology and we miss the God that is standing right there. I think the Pharisees are very much a model for us to not look and say, boy, I'm glad I'm not like them. But to say, oh, Lord, have mercy. How like them am I? The Pharisees have this idea of exactly what the Messiah is going to look like, exactly what he's going to do. And they hold that so tightly that, that when the Messiah shows up for dinner, they don't recognize him. So Jesus watches them. And he does the next thing that Jesus does. Jesus heals people and he tells parables. So he tells this parable that's really much more of a wisdom statement. But like a parable or a wisdom statement, it has this glorious ambiguity. We don't really know whether he's talking about just practical wisdom or perhaps a social commentary or maybe divine revelation or maybe all three. So perhaps he's just giving practical wisdom. You know, at the time that Luke is writing, 
Christianity is not a religion. It doesn't have a temple. It doesn't have a cultus. It doesn't have a god of a city. It's a philosophy. It's a way of life. It's a way of knowing. It's called the way. And so Jesus offering practical wisdom of how to live life would not be out of keeping either in his station as a rabbi or in the place of Christianity as a philosophy, a way of living. And so there is something very practical about waiting for your host to invite you upward rather than presuming and having your host invite you downward. And it makes me wonder, in all of this, where is Jesus sitting? Has his host invited him as the visiting rabbi to the head table? Or is Jesus back there at table 19 saying, hey, you know, when someone more important than you arrives at the dinner, you'll have to cede your place. Perhaps this is practical wisdom, and it is practical. Or perhaps it's social commentary. Luke is writing into a culture of patronage and honor, where those who are wealthy give to those who are not or to the city in order to have their name glorified. So those whose names are inscribed as sponsors of the temple, of whatever deity is there. I think we can relate to that, whoever has their name on the wing of a hospital or on a library or an auditorium because they've donated money. We can see where that comes down. But remember, Luke is writing to his patron, Theophilus, who has sponsored this writing project of of putting together this book. And I think there are some little digs in there, as Luke says, hey, Theophilus, you've, you've commissioned this book and I can't say it directly. But I'm going to dig at you just a little for a challenge. In this culture of reciprocity and repayment, Jesus says, don't invite your friends to have your name glorified among your friends because they can invite you back. Instead, invite those who have no hope of repaying you, for then they will repay you not with another meal, but by speaking well of your name to all people. The way that patronage is supposed to work. That those who have more give to those who have little because it's honorable, rather than those who have much give to those who have much because it can be repaid. Perhaps Jesus is offering this little bit of social commentary. But I think he's also giving us a divine revelation. In this parable, he is speaking the way of the kingdom, for he ends this talking about the reward or the repayment at the resurrection of the just, the resurrection of righteousness. And again, we have that glorious ambiguity. Is Jesus talking about himself? If we remember, he says to Mary and Martha before he raises Lazarus, I am the resurrection and the life. Paul, when he is put on trial in Jerusalem, he stands up and says about his trial, he says, I am on trial because I proclaim the resurrection of Jesus. 
And the Pharisees say, yeah, it's resurrection. And the Sadducees say, no, there's no resurrection in that, in that clash between those who believe in the resurrection and those who don't. Paul is taken back to prison where he can appeal to the emperor. So perhaps Jesus is talking about this very temporal thing. He's on his way to Jerusalem. He's on the way to the cross, but he's also on the way to the resurrection of the one who is truly just. The reward of those who follow Jesus is the reward of the resurrection of Jesus. Paul writes, we are baptized into his death so that we may be raised with him into new life. Jesus may also be talking about something that happens when he comes again and all the dead are raised. But Luke, oh, so practical Luke, there is always this now and not yet that is there and present in this gospel. So perhaps Jesus is saying, if you want to participate in the kingdom now, this is the way that you participate. We know that the way of the kingdom is love. We heard from the writer of Hebrews today his admonition to those who are gathered, those who are actually spread out and gathered in small groups, the diaspora, the Hebrews, who have come to believe that Jesus is the Christ, is the resurrection. He says, let brotherly love continue among you. His first commandment is, let brotherly love continue among you. Then there's a bunch of other stuff, but let brotherly love continue. We contrast that with Ecclesiasticus, the wisdom scripture from the Apocrypha. Arrogance is hateful before the Lord. Right here we have this contrast that Luke is bringing out. Love is the way of the kingdom. Arrogance is the way of death. So let's look little bit at this kingdom way of love. What is the opposite of love? It's not hate. It's pride. Jesus says, greater love hath no man than this, that a man lay down his life for his brother. Lesser love has no one than this, that they value their life above someone else. Jesus says, a new commandment I give you, a new commandment to love one another. And when you love one another, people will know that you are mine because of your love. Love is the mark of the kingdom. As we look through the epistles that form most of the remainder of the New Testament, in every writer we see this contrast between love and pride. We see Paul in that great description of the way of love. He says, love is not proud. Pride is not love. We hear James say, if you really want to fulfill the royal law, you will love your neighbor above yourself. But if you show partiality, if you elevate yourself, above someone else, if you elevate someone else because they can do something for you, if you act pridefully and selfishly, you have violated the whole law and are guilty of sin and transgression. 
John says, anyone who does not love does not know God, for God is love. Jude, the little small book right between the last of John's epistles and John's revelation. Jude writes to a church where false teaching has come in. And he describes the false teachers as those who grumble. And he says these grumblers, these malcontents, follow their own sinful desires. They are loudmouthed boasters, showing favoritism to gain advantage. But you, you, the beloved, that remain the beloved that are faithful, build up yourselves in holy faith, praying in the Holy Spirit, and Keep yourselves in the love of God. Finally, Peter, the one we haven't come to of the authors of the epistles, talks and he says, All right, you have faith, that is good. But to your faith, make every effort striving for virtue. Add to your virtue knowledge and to knowledge self-control and to self-control steadfastness. To steadfastness, godliness to godliness, brotherly love, and finally to brotherly affection, come to the trueness of love, the self-sacrificial love that is beyond I like you, but I love you. So we see in this progression, first we have faith, and faith is always the starting point. But faith is not the ending point. Faith is not the goal. Love is the goal. We see that first step of moving from faith to love is to cultivate virtue. And in the system of virtues and vices, the key vice, the vice that controls them all, as Tolkien would say, the one ring that rules all the vices, is pride. And the key virtue the one that allows us to cultivate every other virtue is humility. So we see right there in this description of our, of our spiritual path from faith to love, our first step. Our first step is cultivating virtue, and that first virtue to cultivate is the humility that stands against our pride. But you know, we, we often misunderstand humility in our culture. We mistake humility for weakness. We mistake humility for insecurity. We might even pass off our own insecurity as a false humility. Oh, I couldn't possibly go up there. Not because I'm being humble, but because I'm scared. The Greek system of virtue says there's an unvirtue, there's a virtue, and there's a more virtue. And you go from here to here and here, you get more and better and better and better. I really prefer the later Jewish system of Musar. It's not the Jewish system that Jesus would have known. It came much later. But it's a system that says balance. That virtue is a balance between two competing goods that if overdone are unbalanced and become evil. So humility is action in the right space. If we occupy too much space, we are proud. 
If we offer too little space, we rob the community of what God has called us into. Humility is occupying this right space, this enough space, the space which God has called us into. The actions that God has called us into are the actions that we take in humility. And the actions that God has not called us into are the actions that we refuse in humility. So we have love, pride, arrogance, or humility. The way of the kingdom is the way of love, and we get to love through cultivating our humility that we may truly love God above all things and love the person in front of us even in the way that we love ourselves. So let's return to our passage. Jesus tells this passage, this parable, and he gives some instructions to the guests. When you are invited, enter with humility. Enter and allow the host to show you the right space. Enter and allow the person who is hosting you to show you the place where you are to sit so that you may occupy the right space. In your prayer, allow God, as the ultimate host, to show you where your place is. And Jesus gives instructions to the hosts. When you throw a party, when you invite people over, broaden your table. Don't just invite those who are in your social circle, in your social class, those who can repay you. Instead, invite those who are not like you. Invite those who can broaden what you know. In humility, invite those who have something to offer beyond what you have to offer. Don't invite those who can pay you back in the same way. Invite those who can pay you back in a different way. And invite them in with the humility to ask, what does this person have to teach me? What can I learn from this person? What experience can I have with this person that I can't have on my own? And with that in mind, we come to this feast, this table, where Jesus is both host and guest in the mystery of our worship. So I ask, do we come to this table Overconfident in what we will encounter? Do we know what is happening? Do we know enough to argue with people who think it happens in a different way? Do we come confident in our theology? Or do we come expecting revelation? Do we come expecting to encounter Christ in a new and fantastic way? Do we come to this table with humility to receive the love that God has for us so that we may have love to give to others? And I wonder, as we depart today, what will we carry out with us? What are the ways that we can act in this way of love, this way of humility 
that is the way of the kingdom. A few suggestions. David Fitch, author and church leader, offers a visual of three circles. The closed circle, the circle of those we know best, the circle that gathers around this table in community. And he offers the dashed circle, the circle that's more porous, the circle of those people we invite into our homes and to sit at our tables. And then the half circle, that that is incomplete, the, the part that we can't make the rest of the circle. And that's the place where we seek to be invited, the place that we go as guest and in the humility of a guest. The circle that is this community, the circle that is the broader community that we interact with, that are the people of our neighborhoods, the people that we invite to our table, and those from whom we seek an invitation because we don't know them yet. These are the ways that we can encounter humility and learn to love more greatly. We might look at the invitations to listen. We have an invitation to listen to God, to listen for his invitation to reveal the right space for each of us. I love the prayer as I come into a place and say, Lord, where is your Holy Spirit already at work? How will you invite me to participate in your work? Beautiful prayer of space and humility. The invitation to listen to others, to listen to the people that we know, to say, wow, what does this person have that I may learn? What insight might this person offer to me? To listen, to understand, to listen to love. Too often, when we're engaged in a conversation with someone else, we don't truly listen, we simply wait to speak. Our mind goes and says, okay, how am I going to respond to that to correct them? How am I going to respond to that with my own story because I agree with them? We listen to agree or disagree. How might it be different to accept the invitation to listen in order to truly understand, to listen in order to love? Listening to the invitation of God, listening to others, we're also called to listen to the other. However we might define the other in our lives, Jesus says, when you throw a feast, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, and the blind, those who are others to society. In what spaces might we listen to those we would consider the other, those that we could, would consider them? They have much to teach us, much to reveal to us, much to challenge our theology. Finally, I'd like to, to offer you a little reflection on how I was invited to listen this weekend. On Friday and Saturday, I attended the Pathways to Hope conference. And it's a conference of faith leaders and 
and workers in mental health and those who struggle with mental health challenges all coming together to say, wow, how can we find a place of hope? We heard Thomas Insel speak and tell us that the place of hope, the place of recovery occurs when, when all of us understand the people around us, the place that we have that is secure and safe, and the purpose that we are given. People, place, purpose as a way to recovery. That sounds a whole lot to me like the kingdom, where we see one another as individuals, where who you are is much more important than what you are, where I can approach you in love and know you as a person, a place of safety and a place that has a purpose to proclaim the love of God to a world in desperately need of hope. It's a place where I was able to interact with people I would never meet anywhere else. In a city of one point, however many million we have now in San Antonio, almost two million people. These are people that I wouldn't run into. We just are in different parts of the city, different parts of community. We circle in different ways. And yet some of them I've come to know. And I've seen them at different events. They have something to offer me, and I have something to offer them. And there's a fantastic group that came actually out of this conference five years ago called Bridges to Care. And it's a way for people within congregations to meet with other people in congregations and learn how to be champions for wellness in their communities, not only in their congregations, but in the community beyond their uh, group of faith. So I, I invite you, I have some flyers on the back table that describe the way of Bridges to Care. And it's, it's really a cohort-based training, about 18 hours spread over as much time as it takes you. And it's online. I think the longest training session is three and a half, maybe four hours. But it's a beautiful way to connect and broaden our table, the people that we come in contact with, and also to have partners to go into the community and welcome those that society makes the other. So, as I close, I pray that in all things, we may have the humility to allow God to place us in his right space. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen.